Hi, I'm Sarah Chia from Bond Supermart, an online platform that provides you with information on bonds, transparent prices, tools and research at your fingertips. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series where we share with you about new bond issues and hold discussions on the fixed income market. Today I have with me Ang Chung Yu, fixed income manager from the Bond Supermart team at IFAST Singapore. I invited him especially today to run us through a particularly difficult and off-putting topic within the fixed income space, bond defaults. We're going to talk about what happens after and what investors should look out for. Hello, I'm Chung Yi. I work in fixed income research at Bond Supermart, covering mostly high yield credits in Asia. Chung Yu, in your years of experience, right, was there ever a particular default that really stands out in your memory? I think all defaults stand out in their own way, but the first one that comes to my mind is probably high flux, simply because of the massive number of individual investors involved. It was the first default in my experience that implicated tens of thousands of investors, and I think that was likely the main difficulty dra- dragging the restructuring pro- progress. Oh yes, I still remember when news about it first came out. It's been a very long process since then, yeah. But you know, I feel like there is a need to remind investors that bonds and stocks are very different investment instruments. While they're both dependent on the performance of a company, no doubt, bonds are very dependent on the ability of the company to keep itself afloat, you know, to manage its risk, to repay its debts and its liabilities. Whereas for stocks, I mean, that is dependent on the company's ability to continue to perform, to innovate and grow. So they're very different, right? But okay, anyway, back to this. Um, let's lay out the basics. You know, could you tell us what constitutes as a default? Generally speaking, we would say that a company has defaulted on its bond when it fails to pay the interest or principal of that bond. It is the same situation as someone missing their monthly mortgage payments on a house loan, in which case their bank would call a default. Besides this common understanding of a default, there are also other circumstances that allow a bondholder to demand full repayment before maturity, which we know as uh, events of default. These are defined by contractual terms in the bond offering documents that serve to protect bondholders. Two examples commonly seen in the market are cross defaults and a breach of financial covenants. For instance, a bond default is usually triggered when the issuer is unable to repay another loan it owes, even though the bond has not yet matured. There are also frequently clauses that require an issuer to maintain its financial strength within certain predefined levels and would be an event or default if the company violates these clauses or covenants. Chongyu, do you think we have seen an extraordinary amount of defaults this year? I mean, given the pandemic, do you feel it's above or below expectations and and why? I guess it really depends on the market that we're talking about. Like for instance, in Singapore, although we don't keep an official tally on the number of bond defaults, so far this year, we are aware of only one default in the SGD market, that of um, Century Sunshine Group Holdings Limited, which failed to redeem its 100 million notes on the maturity date in July. I think the absence of a spike in defaults in the Sing dollar context uh, is likely due to the fact that the number of higher yielding SGD bonds was already on a downtrend even before the pandemic, which is to say that the bond of uh, the amount of bonds of weaker credit quality has been falling in recent years. Whereas if we look at the broader Asia universe and um, based on Moody's data, the trailing 12-month default rate for high yield Asian non-financial corporate issuers was uh, 5.3% at the end of June which was higher than 2.3% for the same period last year. And uh, I think 5.3% is also close to the baseline scenario of 6% this year as forecasted by the rating agency. 
I think so far, accommodative monetary policies in most economies have supported favorable financing conditions for corporate borrowings, thus supporting their funding and debt servicing capabilities. But while policy stimulus cannot fully offset rising credit risk, and hence we have seen the rise in default rates. In any case, the current default rate for Asia is still below what the market is pricing in, as the valuation of Asian bonds provides some buffer against downside risk. But you see, how do we determine what the probability of a bond defaulting is? So to have a sense of the risk that an issuer default on its debt, we have to do what we call as credit analysis or credit research, or analyzing fundamental information about both the company and its bonds. However, most individual bond investors and I think even some institutional investors do not perform any elaborate credit analysis. What they do instead is to rely largely on credit ratings published by the major rating agencies that perform the credit analysis and publish their conclusions in the form of ratings. And the three globally recognized rating agencies are Fitch, Moody's and S&P. Their rating systems use similar symbols. And bonds that are rated below triple B are commonly referred to as high yield bonds or junk bonds, which means they carry a higher probability of default. As for the techniques of analyzing credit risk, it is a huge topic, but we'll typically look at some financial ratios that tell us like how much borrowings a company has and its capability to service those debts. Some examples will be the ratio of the company's operating earnings to its interest expense, the level of debt relative to earnings or revenue, and the amount of debt relative to the company's market valuation. Qualitatively, we also need to have some understanding of the issues industry, like whether it is in a cyclical or defensive sector, the growth prospects of the sectors, the level of competition, etc. Right. Would you say that, you know, you yourself as an analyst, your techniques on the financial ratios and qualitative analysis, would you say that they are also very similar to how Fitch, Moody's, S&P conduct their analysis? Um, other thing is also, you know, do you think that they are privy to information that regular research houses aren't? Yes, uh, in terms of the overall approach, how we analyze credit risk is similar to how the rating agencies do it. And um, yes, I believe the rating agencies usually have better access to the issuers' management and the financials, especially if we are talking about private issuers. I see. Um, okay, so the other thing about defaults, right, if we're going back to that, how are they typically announced? You know, like what kind of channels can investors tune in to know if, that a, a, to know if a bond that they have invested in has defaulted? Like you mentioned uh, Century Sunshine earlier, right? How did they announce it? Most corporate bonds are issued by listed entities and the bonds itself are also listed on an exchange. So a default will trigger an exchange announcement. But in any case, in the event of default should trigger a written notification from the bond trustee to note holders who would be informed by their broker or custodians. And um, talking about Century Sunshine, I think it was a very rare case based on my experience as the company waited until the actual maturity date and very late in the day to formally announce that they can't repay the money and will be filing for bankruptcy. Okay, and let's say the bond defaults, right? So then, then what happens? What happens for the issuer? What happens for the investors? Probably speaking, there are two scenarios following a corporate default. The issuer can either file for liquidation or he can try to negotiate with his creditors to reach a compromise by restructuring the company's debt. The details will vary across different jurisdictions, and I'll use Singapore as an illustration. In Singapore, defaulted companies that want to go for restructuring rather than liquidation can apply for a debt moratorium and implement the restructuring under one of two mechanisms, under a scheme of arrangement or under judicial management, or JM for short. 
So the main difference between the two is that in the scheme of arrangement, the company's existing management remains in charge, whereas in judicial management, an independent outsider is appointed by the court to run the company. So naturally, we do expect and we do see JM happens less often than scheme of arrangement, probably because most management don't like to lose control of their company. And in practice, judicial management tends to be the chosen mode of restructuring when accreditors no longer have the confidence in existing management to rehabilitate the company. So what happens next is the issue will try to negotiate with creditors to reach a consensual solution, which usually means a haircut on the debt amount, a lowering of the interest rate of the debt, an extension of the maturity debt, a debt-to-equity swap, or some combination of these things. And at this stage, bondholders should try to connect with each other and form a bigger block so that they have a stronger negotiation position and better recovery prospects. If the parties cannot come to an agreement, then the issue probably will be liquidated, in which case the company's assets will be collected and then sold off to pay its investors in accordance with their ranking the capital structure. So the consensual solutions that you mentioned, right, like you know the, the haircut on debt amount, the lower interest rates, extending the maturity of the bond, are there some of these that happen more frequently than others? Nope. These are the typical examples of what would happen in a debt restructuring. It really depends on the financial and other circumstances of the issue at the time of default. Hmm, okay. So, a lot of times when we talk about whether a bond is of interest or whether, you know, it is of value, we look at how the debt is ranked, right? Like what you mentioned about the ranking within the capital structure. Um, you know, we talk about whether this bond is considered subordinated. Is it junior subordinated debt? Um, and, and, you know, the, this gives investors an understanding of where they stand. Um, but are they ever in a position to sue the issuer to sell off assets to pay them back? By seizing the assets and selling them to pay creditors, this is actually what would happen in a liquidation scenario. But in contrast, a restructuring exercise like scheme of arrangement or judicial management seeks to rehabilitate the company or repair financials on a co- going concern basis. So which route provides high recovery really depends on the circumstances of the issuer. And when the issuer applies to the court to be put under reorganization process, in most cases, a statutory monitoring will be granted. And this mechanism restrains any enforcement action or proceeding against the company. In Singapore, even a secured creditor would need leave of court to enforce its security or with the consent of the judicial manager when the borrower is under moratorium. Bondholders or other creators can apply to the court to wind up the company compulsorily, meaning to force the liquidation, but that will still be subject to the judgment of the court. And this judgment will take into account many economic and social interests when the court tries to make the decision, such as those of the company's employees, other creators, suppliers, customers and shareholders. That sounds like a very long road to actually getting their money back. You know, at what point will investors finally gain clarity on the timeline and the amount that they're going to receive? Unfortunately, there is no predetermined time frame for insolvency procedures. In a reorganization or restructuring exercise, investors will gain clarity on the timeline and recovery value when a scheme of arrangement or restructuring proposal is approved by the requisite majority of creators or stakeholders and then sanctioned by the court. In contrast, we get we usually get lower visibility in terms of timeline and recovery for a liquidation scenario, as it really depends on how complicated the winding up process is, which in turn depends on factors like the number of creditors or shareholders of the company, its corporate structure, the jurisdictions of the assets and businesses, etc. And well, here's a question I think most investors would like to hear. Has there ever been a case, you know, whereby the issuer actually compensated the investors in full? 
I think excluding technical defaults where the default happened due to a breach of the bond terms rather than the issuer missing a payment, it is rare for unsecured bondholders to get full repayment on defaulted bonds. If we take the US as an example, a Moody study has suggested that senior unsecured bondholders get about 38% of their money returned on average in defaults. There's also the difficulty of how do we measure the amount recovered. Like if an issuer compensates creditors by exchanging the debt for equity or other securities, it can be difficult for us to say how much is the recovery value. Nonetheless, there are certainly cases where bondholders make a full recovery. Like when Sichuan Coal Industry Group first defaulted in 2016, the company received government assistance and in the end managed to repay the debt, although it has since defaulted again many times and filed for bankruptcy in July this year. Oh wow! You know, actually, there is this rather prominent case this year, um, also Chinese bonds, Peking University's cross default, which affected almost 1.7 billion USD worth of bonds with Kipwell deeds. So Chengyi, could you tell us what happened and what is the deal with their Kipwell deeds? For those who aren't familiar, um, Kipwell agreements are basically a form of credit enhancement for a bond. It's an agreement where um, the parent basically keeps the issuing subsidiary in good financial health by maintaining certain financial ratios or levels of equity. But they aren't legally binding, which I suppose is how Peking Founders University is now in a situation that they are. What happened was that Peking University founder group filed for bankruptcy in February. A lot of the bonds issued by the group's overseas subsidiaries had this keep well provision, which is essentially promised by the parent to keep its offshore issuing entity solvent. But this doesn't come with a guarantee of payment by the parent. And the Peking Founder Insolvency is an important case because there was previously no precedent on enforcement of keepwell structures, meaning there was an example where a company defaulted and then its bondholders tried to demand repayment from this keepwell provider. In August, the bankruptcy administrator of Peking Founder rejected the debt claims related to those bonds with keepwell provisions. What it means is that bondholders cannot take their claims to Peking Founder and their recovery rate is likely to be low. This restructuring is being watched closely by bond investors and rating agencies because the outcome will have a big influence on how the market looks at and price these keep well back bonds moving forward. Wait, I'm sorry. Uh, is there really no precedence at all? Across the globe even? Um, I guess there were cases of bonds with keep well provisions defaulting, but to my knowledge, there is no precedent of an enforcement on the keep well deed. But the, the idea of keep well deeds, it, they aren't new, right? Why do you think this hasn't happened before though? It is not new, but it hasn't been around for that long neither. So this keep-well structure is mainly seen among the Chinese issuers, and if I remember correctly, Chinese companies only began using this structure over the past decade, and bonds with keep-well provisions are today still a relatively small part of the market. Has this affected the credibility of other Chinese or global bonds with keep-well deeds? I mean, since one already turned its back on the bonds, um, maybe other investors might worry that the rest will as well? I think it just serves as a reminder that we need to consider bonds supported by keep up these on a case-by-case basis. We should understand the standalone credit profile of the issuer itself, meaning without the credit support by the parent, and also the economic relationship between the issuer and the support provider. I think these are really the areas that investors should have been looking at in the first place. So thus far, we have not, been, uh, we have not seen across-the-board sell-off in bonds carrying this keep well structure. So Chongyi, in your experience, what are some cautionary telltale signs that investors should look out for when it comes to defaults? You know, is there a certain type of bond 
that you yourself would personally avoid? I would say defaults are what I call as the price of admission to invest in high yield bonds. And unfortunately, even the best high yield investors suffer the occasional defaults in their portfolio. If we cannot withstand any chance of loss and insist on zero defaults, we will necessarily have to screen out all high yield issuers and invest only in the strong investment grade names. But in that case, we also have to be satisfied with a lower return on our portfolio. So the conclusion is I have no magic formula to share. And there isn't one or two traits that investors can rely on consistently to identify companies that are going to default. So I think the best defense is instead to make sure our portfolio is well diversified when we invest in high yield bonds. In order for us to earn the higher expected return on junk bonds, the higher risk has to be spread over many small holdings so that a single default won't decimate a large amount of our capital. So the conclusion is we should not invest in high yield bonds unless we can be totally diversified. Okay, well, my guess is that this podcast episode may actually result in a lot of listeners thinking that bonds sound like a scary product, um, especially with all the uncertainty that comes after a default and, you know, they, they might think that they don't want to invest in it anymore. So what do you have to say about that as someone who specializes in bonds? Well, at the end of the day, bonds as an asset class is still lower risk than stocks and it provides tremendous diversification benefits to an all equities portfolio. A balanced portfolio with some bonds in it almost always outperform an all-stock portfolio on a risk-adjusted basis. So bonds is still something that every investor, regardless of their risk appetite, should have in their portfolio. And for most investors, I think the right approach is to look at bonds as an anchor to a portfolio, something to provide stability rather than higher returns. And historically, the default rate of investment grade or high-quality bonds is very low, so that provides some comfort. And if you are the more aggressive type looking for high yield, again, I would say the prerequisite is you need to be able to buy a diversified basket of high yield bonds. And on that last point, our related companies in the IFAS group actually have an initiative called Bond Express, where accredited investors can invest in selected corporate bonds starting from as little as 5000 With bonds typically being offered in sizes of US dollar 300000 I think this is a really good way for investors to properly diversify their bond portfolios. For those who are interested, you can find more information on the Bond Express page on the Bonds Promote website. Alright, I think that was a really good way to conclude our discussion on bond defaults today. So thank you, Chongyu. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. This was brought to you by Bond Supermart. I'm Sarah Chia, and our guest analyst with us today is Ang Chongyu from the Bond Supermart team at IFAS Singapore. Follow Bond Supermart on Twitter, Facebook, and Telegram to get first-hand updates on new bond issues, credit updates, and special events. For bond information and articles, visit our website, bondsupermart.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Thank you.